Probably not, but there's a lot of good application in the prophet Malachi. Uh, We're going to look at chapter 2, verse 17 to chapter 3, verse 5. So we'll begin reading at chapter 2, verse 17. Preparation for Yahweh's coming. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, in what way have have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien. Because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Well, let us pray. O Lord, our God, we pray that we, your people, would never grow weary of doing that which is good. We know that your saints, those whom you've chosen, those who are your sheep, shall never be snatched from from your hand. But often we can uh, fall into our remaining corruption for long periods of time. We can go through periods of great being shaken. We can go through periods of being greatly assailed uh, because of that remaining corruption. And we can sometimes grow weary of doing that, which is good. But we ask and pray that you remind us today of your justice. Remind us today of who we are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind us today about your just judgment, but also remind us today about where your justice uh, is seen for sinner uh, for sinners to find mercy and forgiveness in Christ, who bore that justice upon Himself. And so we ask and pray that as redeemed saints, that we would love the things that you love, that we would love worship, that we would love one another, and do so according to your word. Help us not to grow weary in the slog of life, but help us to press on in the muck of life that we have to deal with day by day. And we are thankful that as Christ has come into his holy temple, as Christ is that temple, as he builds his church, who is the temple, Christ shall come again to usher in the new heavens and new earth. Thank you for that day that awaits. Thank you for that day of judgment that shall come. Thank you that it's a great day of rejoicing for your people. And we're thankful that we can stand in that day, not because of anything we have done, but because of Christ who is righteous. And so we pray that you give us illumination by your spirit to understand what your word says. There are difficult things for us. And even though we read and we try to meditate and contemplate what these things mean, we know that we need your spirit to help us. So we pray that you give us that illumination, give us aid from on high. And we pray that if there are any here today who do not know you, please save them. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, one thing that's very difficult for every human being, and especially human beings in this modern day and age, it's the idea of having to wait. We want everything at our fingertips. We want answers right away, but sometimes we just have to wait. Trying to teach our dear daughter that very thing, and she goes, waiting is just so very hard. 
But the people of Israel were going to wait a very long time for Yahweh to speak again to them during this time of the prophet Malachi. This is post-exile. The people have gone into exile, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. They have gone into exile for violating the covenant that God made with them. God has now brought them back. The second temple has been built. But things seem to be fading as far as the people of God are concerned. Malachi is probably a contemporary or probably a little bit before Ezra or Nehemiah. And so as the 500s, remember 538, the decree of Cyrus, the people can come back. 516 BC, the temple is rebuilt. There's hope. There's excitement. The people have come back. But as the hope of the 500s fades into the 400s, the people begin to grow complacent. The temple is built, but Jerusalem is still in ruins and the people still have no king on that throne. And so the people's perception of God's love for them, the people's perception of what pleases Yahweh begins to fade. And so Malachi comes and corrects these false perceptions concerning Yahweh, concerning what pleases Yahweh, concerning uh, his covenant with them. And so Malachi is structured with six disputations. The first disputation answers the question, does God love us or care for us? The second disputation deals with profane and wicked worship and corrupt priests. The third disputation deals with widespread covenant violation. Even after the people come back, even after exile, the people still don't understand and are still uh, violating the covenant God had made with them. And it's seen in how Israelites viewed marriage, how they were marrying with foreign ladies. And then we come today to the fourth disputation. And they have questions concerning God's justice. And the problem that we see arises from this question. The problem is when we, when the people of God, when anybody can misinterpret blessing and curse. Some people might assume the wicked seem to be prospering. Therefore, it's probably better to be wicked. And some people see that the righteous are not prosper, prospering. So it's really not good to follow Yahweh at all. And Israel and Malachi's day seem to assume that Yahweh is one, indifferent, and two, unrighteous. And so we see that they think Yahweh's indifferent because the wicked nations seem to be prospering. Does Yahweh even care? Jerusalem's still in ruins. Where is the Messiah? They're essentially uh, asserting that Yahweh is very deistic. He just doesn't seem to care what's going on with this world. But they also think he is unrighteous. God seems to be delighting in evil. God seems to be allowing these things to occur. And so then the people are like, well, if Yahweh promotes that thing, if Yahweh's for that thing, why don't we get things from Yahweh by doing that which is wicked? There is that mercenary spirit once again among the people of Israel. It's practical atheism. How do I get things from God? Well, he must delight in wickedness. So we're just going to engage in wickedness to get good things from God. And Israel engaged in a lot of wicked conduct in their worship and also how they functioned in society as well. They had questions concerning the injustice of God, and they thus began to act in unjust ways. And so in this fourth disputation, Malachi exposes 
the injustice of God's people by pointing to the just God. He shows their wickedness. He shows their wearying of the Lord God most high and says Yahweh is going to come and he's going to bring judgment upon this people. So we'll look at this fourth disputation under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see the just messenger, chapter 217 and 31. And then we'll see the just people in verses 2 through 5 of chapter 3. So the just messenger shall come, or just mainly the just messenger, and then we'll see the just people. So let's first look at the just messenger in 2.17 and 3.1. And all of these disputations have a similar flow to it. Yahweh gives an assertion. The people question that assertion, and then Yahweh responds to that. And so we see the assertion in verse 17. They have been wearying the Lord. Verse 17, you have wearied the Lord with your words. There has been this progression of the conduct of the people throughout their entire history, but especially after they have returned, they should have known better. They should have understood. Yahweh had said the same thing over and over and over and over and over again to them, even before exile, because they need to hear it again and again and again and again. And so God sent them into exile. And you think after exile, they'd figure it out. They think after being sent away from the land that they would understand. But sometimes God's people take a long time to understand things. You can say the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. And then somebody's like, you never seem to talk about that. But I talk about it all the time. I get that as a pastor. I understand that you can say the same thing. Pastor Butler's told me that many times. You say the same thing over and over and over again. And people don't seem to understand. Maybe you feel like you're saying the same thing to me. You're saying something over and over and over again, and I don't seem to understand. But the people of Israel do not understand, and they are wearying the Lord. Now, this is for us. This is to accommodate to our language. There's other passages in Scripture that speak of how the Lord neither grows weary nor is uh, nor faints. But we see here this description of the the wickedness of the people. How long how, how long they have engaged in wickedness against Yahweh. You have wearied the Lord with your words. They're speaking ill of the Lord. And there's this image of vexation that we see to picture for us what the people are doing to the Lord God most high. You have wearied the Lord. You have wearied Yahweh with your words. That is this assertion. And they continue in their unbelief in Yahweh's ways. And so then the people don't seem to understand. That's why we have these questions. We have the assertion. Here's what's going on. And the people like, wait, in what way have we wearied him? The people are questioning. Well, what do you mean, Yahweh? We seem to be doing everything right. Once again, there is no self-awareness. In what way have we wearied him? Israel doesn't see it. And so then Malachi informs them in that you say, here's how it comes about. This is the response. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? There is two ways in this response. They seem to think God delights in evil. Remember, there's the biblical concept of retribution. If you do what is good, you'll receive blessing. You do what is pleasing in Yahweh's sight, you'll receive blessing. You do what is wicked in Yahweh's sight, you shall receive curses. And that's why I'm very thankful for the book of Job and the book of Ecclesiastes, because it gives us nuance in this world. 
We believe that God is a God of justice, but sometimes God delays in bringing that justice upon wickedness. The people should have understood Ecclesiastes or read it a little bit more, read Job, but they seem to have forgotten that important nuance. Sometimes the wicked seem to prosper. Sometimes the righteous seem to go through it. But that doesn't mean Yahweh doesn't care. That doesn't mean Yahweh is not a God of justice. But the people of Israel are asserting and saying in their unbelief that Yahweh seems to delight in evil. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Israel wants things. They want material blessing. And they see that the other nations seem to be doing things, uh, doing, uh, doing certain things. And they want to do that very thing as well, rather than do what Yahweh has said. So they think Yahweh delights in evil. And then they cry out, where is the God of justice? This is not like the psalmist. This is not like Habakkuk. Cry out, where is the God of justice? This is a cry of unbelief. Where is he? Where could he be? He seems to delight in these things. Why not just do walk and engage, uh, walk in ways that weary him and walk in darkness? When the psalmist is crying out, I mean, there's usually a turn of faith. Why is the wickedness happening? Where are you, O Lord? Yet I will still trust in you. But there is not that turn of faith here with the people in 2.17. Where is the God of justice? Well, then Yahweh answers that question. Malachi answers that question in 3.1. He is going to come. But there's going to be a messenger who comes first. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. There's going to be a forerunner who comes, who prepares the way of Yahweh. And as we turn to to still consider 3.1, moving along in the verse there, and the Lord whom you seek, there's a, will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. The sign of the Lord who will come, the sign of the messenger of the covenant. Notice there's two messengers there. There's the messenger of Yahweh, and there's a messenger of the covenant. One is preparing the way for Yahweh. One is Yahweh. And we see the one who prepares the way for me, preparing the way for Yahweh, that is Yahweh speaking. He is going to be the sign that Yahweh is going to come. He's going to be a sign that the Lord, notice there's a shift in the word there. You see it by the lowercase O-R-D. It is Adonai. The king is going to come. The just king is going to come to his throne. The just king is going to come and render justice and render equity as the one who rules with justice and with equity. That's exactly what the child is going to do in Isaiah 9. He's going to establish his throne and establish order and establish peace and establish justice. That's what a king is supposed to do. And so this messenger is going to prepare the way. He is going to go before the king. He's going to walk into the town and say, here comes the king and prepares the way before him. He wants to make things suitable for his coming. Remember, they didn't have news. They didn't have text alerts. They didn't have email and internet. So the way in which glad or glad or bad tidings uh, was communicated was by way of these messengers. And so one, a messenger is going to come before the Lord, before the king comes to his temple. The king priest comes uh, to reign and rule with justice. The Lord whom you seek 
will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. And there is perhaps some connection with Exodus 23:20, as the angel of the Lord walks before the people, as the angel of the Lord prepares uh, and walks before the people of Israel. On Mount Sinai, it says, that's Leviticus, sorry. <laughs> Exodus 23, 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to keep you in the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So they're going to bring them the promises of the Lord to bring them into that land. And then we see that just as the angel guided them to that land, so too is this messenger going to come and prepare the way of Yahweh's coming. So there is some connection with Exodus 23, which will come up a little bit more later on. So they're preparing for Yahweh's coming. They're preparing for this king to come. And the reason that's important is because the people were longing for a sensible experience. They were longing for a theophany. They were longing for Yahweh to appear to them because it's going to be 400 years. Brethren, as we read God's word, God doesn't appear that often, does he? We just read those moments and they're there. But there's like sentences that say the word of the Lord hasn't come in a long time. You read Samuel and Samuel comes on the scene. The word of the Lord hasn't come in a very long time. And it's going to be a very long time before Yahweh comes and speaks. And so for 400 years, the remnant, the true people of God, as they have to deal with generation after generation, they have the promise that that forerunner shall come, that Yahweh is going to appear. An example of a theophany is like the burning bush. Yahweh appears to Moses. There is this theophany, this sensible sight, but there's now going to be another appearing of Yahweh, and it's going to be the one who is son taking on human flesh. The word becoming flesh and tabernacling among his people. And so this is that promise. He is going to come. The one whom you seek, the hope for Israel, the God who would come will come suddenly. Now there's going to be judgment. We'll talk about that in verses two through five, but it's going to be unexpected. That's what the suddenly conveys here. Will suddenly come to his temple. He's not going to be what Israel thought he was going to be. And when the Lord comes to his temple, he's not exactly what Israel thought he was going to be. They were looking for one who actually had a sword, an actual literal sword, and was going to march on Rome. One who was a political military leader. That is what they were looking for. But when he comes, and all the Old Testament prophets point ahead to what his weapon will be and what he shall do. His weapon will be his word. We see this in the servant songs. And he is going to suffer, and he is going to die. Peter should have understood that before he said, Lord, may it never be. And then Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. And so he is going to come, but Israel is going to be thinking they're doing what's right. But in reality, they haven't been paying attention to what God's word has said. He's going to come suddenly to his temple. He's going to come to this place of worships. Remember in the Old Testament and in the New, how one worships and who one worships is a key indicator for one's conduct, generally speaking. Now, we know that Jesus Christ himself is the temple. The Old Testament tabernacle and temple point to him, and it is his body that is the temple. We see that in John chapter 2. But what's interesting is there is one who does come to the temple in Mark 11. After he enters into Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, and then he looks around, and then he comes out, and then he goes in again, and he turns the table. Why? 
because Israel was not worshiping aright. And that paves the way for the Olivet Discourse in Mark 13, talking about the end of the Old Covenant to bring in the new, because he's going to destroy that Old Covenant temple, and he's going to rebuild the temple, which is his body, after three days. You see the flow of that in Mark? We went through that in Mark's gospel. He comes to the temple. There's issues in the temple. He's going to destroy the temple, and he will build the temple of his body. So he's going to come. It's not going to be what they think. And remember, the disciples are like, what do you mean you're going to destroy the temple? And that leads into all of that, the Olivet Discourse. What, what, what's going to happen? What's the sign? What shall take place? So the Lord, Adonai, king, will come into his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Again, there's the messenger of Yahweh and the messenger of that covenant. Again, this refers to Yahweh. The one who is the messenger of Yahweh is not going to be Yahweh, but one who prepares the way for Yahweh. But the messenger of the covenant is going to be Yahweh himself. He's going to be a king and he's going to be a prophet. We also know he's a priest who comes to the temple. We kind of see sort of subtly prophet, priest and king here in verse one. But all these references here, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. These are all messianic references. What's interesting, it's very clear it's going to be Yahweh who comes, but it's going to be a man who comes. How do we reckon with that reality? Certainly in Psalm 110, we do see how Yahweh can be both the sender of the messenger and be the king and messenger who was sent. You see, even here, we can see Trinitarian type language. As we consider the Trinity, as we consider the triunity of God, there is only one God who eternally exists in three persons. And as we consider and as we distinguish between the Father and the Son, not in being or nature, but by several peculiar properties and personal relations, the Father is unbegotten, the Son is eternally begotten, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father. So it is the Son who takes on human flesh. It is the divine Son who takes on a human nature. And even in Psalm 110.1, we see the Lord said to my Lord. If you read that carefully, the words Lord and Lord are different. One refers to Yahweh, one refers to Adonai. Who is he speaking about there? The Lord said to my Lord, and many theologians have pointed to the fact that we get a glimpse into accommodated language concerning what God does for the salvation of sinners, namely the Father sending the Son, the Son willingly undertaking to do what is pleasing to die for a wretched people. So this king prophet is going to come. He is going to bring salvation. He's going to bring justice, but he is going to bring judgment as well. And I think one thing we can take away from these verses, especially when we consider verse 17 of chapter 2, how the people wearied the Lord, how the people grew weary of doing good. Brethren, if you're a believer in Christ Jesus, never grow weary of doing good. Never grow weary of honoring God by way of worship and never grow weary of doing that which is pleasing in his sight. Brethren, we can do that. 
we have, we have remaining corruption. We can go through instances where we grow tired and weary. God is not a taskmaster, but God helps us and gives us the strength that we need. First John 5 says, his commandments are not burdensome. And the reason his commandments are not burdensome is because we have been redeemed in Christ Jesus, who comes and says, come, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Uh, take my burden, uh, take up, I'm getting it mixed up there. I want to make sure I get that correct. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 30. He says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We cannot earn our way by way of law keeping, but there is one who kept the law in its perfection, and those who've been redeemed in him ought to delight in the things that are pleasing to him. And the reason I say never grow weary of doing good is because I understand the difficulty of the slog of life. Brother, this life is short, but sometimes it feels very long, doesn't it? And it can look very daunting. You see, we are a people that like change, don't we? It's what I call September syndrome. I think I coined that. Maybe I coined a word, I don't know. Maybe somebody said that some other time, but here's what I mean by that very thing. Churches like to start things in September. School likes to start in September. There's this great anticipation that comes with September. The people of God like those things, don't they? The people of God like change sometimes. And so when you come to our church and we just say, just come to church every Sunday for the rest of your life. I mean, that can be daunting for people, right? I mean, there isn't a lot of change there. We might have bring a de- some deacons in and a pastor in and that sort of thing. Those things are exciting. But for the most part, we do the same thing every week. We don't have puppets, ponies, programs, that sort of thing because we God has said in his word how he wishes to be worshiped and so often we can look to everything outside the church rather than the church itself the bible says that God is uh, must be worshiped acceptably because he is a consuming fire what are the people of God supposed to do honor God and be faithful We are supposed to worship him according to his word. He is the audience when we enter into his house. We don't ask the world what they want. We don't ask the uh, people what they want. We ask God what he wishes. And sometimes I... Oh, the way that that September syndrome can manifest in the people of God is by saying, the church needs this. We need that. We need this. And oftentimes it's everything but the main thing, right? We always want things. Here's what Christianity needs, and it's usually things outside the church. That's why I'm not a big fan of revivals. I'm probably going to shock some people by saying that very thing. But if you read the history of revivalism, most of the time it's things that are not regular Sunday, everyday worship. And there's a lot of infighting. There's a lot of battling. There's a lot of issues. A lot of people are so excited by these revivals rather than just slogging along in the church. Brethren, what do we need? We need the word of God. We need pastors who aren't concerned with all those other things, but who rightly divide the word of God, who are apt to teach, who are ready to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. And we need people who are faithful to just come. Come on Sunday morning. Come on Sunday evening. Come to prayer. It always bothers me. 
I talk about what bothers me a lot sometimes. I do love you all. Things just bother me. There's probably things that bother you. But one thing that really bothers me is when people gripe about the things we don't have in the church, but they never attend everything we have. They attend one service, but you don't have this. You don't have that. You don't have all these things the other church has. But there's a thousand other churches, dear brethren, that are not like us. And that, that's okay. There's good churches, that sort of thing. I'm, that's fine. But brethren, if you want to have some clout with me, attend everything. Attend prayer, attend Wednesday, attend morning, attend evening. And we've only got four things, dear brethren. And this is where that broken record comes in, right? I say this all the time. Why? Because we need to hear it. It is the means of grace. It is where God feeds his people in a special way. God loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And remember, the people in Malachi's day, they were worshiping profanely. They were worshiping in the ways they wanted to worship rather than worshiping the way that God wishes to be worshiped. And God's word is pretty clear, spirit and in truth, acceptably, for he is a consuming fire. So brethren, redeemed saints never grow weary in doing good in the honoring of God and also in the loving of brethren. And thankfully, God is just, God is good, God is gracious, and this just God this just messenger shall bring a just people, shall make a just people, which is what we see in verses 2 through 5. So the just messenger will transition to the just people in verses 2 through 5. Notice what this messenger, both of them, are going to do, but especially the messenger of the covenant. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Who can endure the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is an important motif in scripture. It's talking about God's judgment. We see the day of the Lord come upon the northern kingdom by Assyria. We see the day of the Lord come upon the southern kingdom by way of Babylon. These are all types of the day of the Lord when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. But there's also another time we see the day of the Lord. It's when Christ comes his first time. And when he comes that first time, it is to bring judgment upon old covenant Israel. And we see the day of the Lord in the destruction of Israel, the temple in AD 70. And so when his day comes, when the day of judgment emerges, who can stand when he appears? And there is language in the book of Revelation asking this very question, who can stand before him? Who can stand before God most high? If God is holy, if God is just, who can stand before him? It's those who have been made righteous, declared righteous, those who've been set apart as the people of God. And that's why there's that interlude in Revelation 7 that talks about the 144,000. Not a literal 144,000. Remember, the book of Revelation is visionary. And the reason I take Revelation figuratively is because I take Revelation 1-1 literally. That's what G.K. Beale says. Because we see it, uh, it's gonna, the language is what God will show. What God will signify uh, as he uh, appears and uh, um, uh, brings vision to the apostle John. And so numbers signify something. What is the number? What's the context in the Old Covenant and the Old Testament? And what is then does that mean? And so 144,000 symbolizes the fullness of those who would be saved. Who can stand? It's the 144,000 who've been redeemed in Christ, namely all 
his people, all of the elect. So we can stand. And it was meant to cause Israel back at this time to consider, can we stand before him? Who can stand when he appears? This military language, who can stand in the face of sure and certain defeat? Now, the day of the Lord is meant to be terrifying. And again, we see it with Assyria. We see it with Babylon. Israel does not want it. We see the day of the Lord in Amos chapter 5. But again, as we consider Malachi chapter 4, we see when Elijah comes... I will send you Elijah before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. So again, there's the second coming of Christ. But when Christ comes in that first coming, it is also the day of the Lord. And again, we see this promise of the day of the Lord, even in Mark 11 through 13, with the prophecy concerning the end of that temple. And this judgment here, although it's terrifying for those not in Christ, it is meant to bring hope for the remnant. God will vindicate the righteous and defeat the wicked. may not happen speedily, but there are probably some faithful people in Israel at this time who are going, why haven't you figured it out, people of God? Why haven't we understood? Why haven't we got this right just yet? And so they need to be reminded and have this hope that the messenger is going to come to bring justice for his people. He is going to judge the wicked, but he's going to refine his people. He's going to purge the people. We see that in verse three. He will start verses two and three. He is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He's going to refine. He's going to remove the dirt. He's going to remove that dross. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will make his people shine. He will purify the sons of Levi. Perhaps not just a priest reference, but a reference to all the people, a symbol of holiness, a people that have been set apart. Now, in the New Testament, it is the church who is set apart. Ephesians 5, Christ dies for the church and how he's going to present her holy and without blame before him. First Peter 2, the church is called the people of God. They shall be set apart. So using Old Testament language, describe New Testament realities. And so they shall purge them as gold and silver and notice the purpose that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Again, right worship. Israel was worshiping according to their own ways, worshiping according to man's ways. And Yahweh had set forth in Deuteronomy. Here's how I want to be worshiped. What did Israel do? Let's worship like everybody else. Let's have the do what Mo, they do for the Molex, what they do for the Baals. Let's do this, that, or the other. They looked like the world rather than a people that has been set apart. And so this is a problem. They have profaned the worship. They, they even brought defiled animals before God most high. God's not going to notice He's not going to see that it's this animal with a blemish. So we'll just offer it and see what we get out of it. That was the demeanor among the people rather than entering in and wanting to worship God. And it, that's why we need great salvation. And if we've been redeemed in Christ and saved in him, the highest privilege is to worship him. The highest privilege is to bless his holy name and to sing praises to him. Because that's what we're going to do in heaven forever. If you don't like church, you're not going to like heaven. If you don't like a church that sings praises to God, you're not, you're not going to like heaven very much. 
And so that's why it's a blessing to be able to gather. I get it can be tiring. I get I can drone on. I get all of those things, dear brethren. But there is nothing better than to gather morning and evening. And remember, throughout the centuries, the people of God gathered morning and evening. It's only been the past 100, 150 years that we got rid of that second service. And the people of God are now half as educated on the word of God. It's better for the people of God to be doubly educated on the word of God, to be fed by the word of God, and to grow in the things of God. And right worship is hard. I remember coming into free grace and learning all about what it meant and what it looked like. And Pastor Butler was very patient and gracious with me. You know, I had my views of certain things, but he is very gracious. And the beautiful thing is our worship is lifelong and will be forever. And one thing that's a good indicator of faithfulness to the Lord God is gathering, dear brethren. Gathering doesn't save us, but if we love God, should we not love his house? Christ dies for the church. And as the psalmist said, God loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. You see how Malachi is applicable? He talks about marriage. He talks about worship. He talks about how we think we can't get things. I mean, it's just great complaining and uh, it's full of good stuff. But Stuart says, Malachi has been inspired to spend a good deal of time on the issue of proper sacrifice. Because worship is such a basic indicator of overall faithfulness to the covenant. And here again, he describes the result of the sanctification of the people of God in terms of its effect on the way worship is performed. They're purified. They're refined. For what reason? To worship God aright. And this offering then continues, this worship then continues in verses 4 and 5. And the only way that we can worship God aright is by Yahweh's doing, Yahweh's messenger, Yahweh's coming, Yahweh's refining and what he does. And even in our sanctification, we pray that God would give us that understanding of what his word says and give us that desire and resolve to do what is pleasing in his sight. And if we fail, there's forgiveness, dear brethren. It's a blessing. God is gracious. God is kind. I know I say come morning and evening, and I think you should come morning and evening. And I'm probably preaching to the choir here when I say that very thing. But brethren, I understand there are one-offs. The mentality should be we are going to the house of the Lord. If you get sick, you have a flat tire, something happens, there's a one-off, that's perfectly fine. For you, you know, God is not a taskmaster. But there are those who can be lazy when it comes to the things of God and that is who we kind of want to give a little bit of a, a reminder to, to come to the house of the Lord and be fed. I can't tell you how often I'm sitting with people one-on-one -on -one and they're telling me their problems and I, I'm happy to hear the problems. And then I, they tell me the problem and then I say to them, you know, we preached on that Sunday night. I'm thinking that in my head. That's what you needed. You needed to be in the house of the Lord that night to hear that very thing. And thankfully... You know, even as well, I understand the distance aspect. If you live far away, do your best. You can tune in online. That's fine. But it's better to be in the house of the Lord. That is just a, 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 an extra thing. But it is a blessing to be in the house of the Lord if you are able to offer worship to God. And then he goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, it's a pleasant offering. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Right now, the worship is not pleasant. The only way we have pleasant worship is through Christ Jesus and according to 
his word. He's contrasting it with the wicked worship that we see in the second disputation. And so it's going to be like the days of old. Why? Because there's widespread treachery when it comes to worship in Israel. And so he's reminiscent of the good times, reminiscent of some of the glory days that did not last. The days of David, the days of Hezekiah, the days of Josiah. Solomon, yes, it was the best time as far as Israel goes by, uh, pros- uh, with prosperity. But worship, there were still high places. I mean, that's what turned Solomon away, his ladies in the high places, that sort of thing. But Hezekiah was good. David is good. Josiah is good. But for the most part, there's not a lot of good when it comes to worship in Israel. And the beautiful thing is in Christ, if we are in him and when he comes again, it shall be forever. That worship shall be pleasant. But I know sometimes it can sound like a drudgery or sound like a le- like legalism when I say come to the house of the Lord. But it's for your good. I hope you delight to come to the house of the Lord that you can say with the psalmist, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. And so that is what the people will do. They will offer speaking about the new covenant and what that looks like. It shall be pleasant to the Lord God most high through Christ. But then there's also judgment. Verse five, I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me. Right worship leads to right practice. Right doctrine leads to right practice, but also wicked worship can lead to wicked practice as well. They dabble in sorcery. They have no reminder that you shouldn't dabble in sorcery. They dabble in adultery. Deuteronomy 5.18. Sorceries in Deuteronomy 18. They dabble in witchcraft. The Pharisees also dabble in it too. So we see in Mark chapter 1. Perjury, lying under oath. Exodus 20. Exploitation underpaying or not paying their employees. That's wicked, dear brethren. Widows and orphans, uh, there's this, we need to, uh, they're not merciful to these ones. They're wicked to them. They exploit them. Deuteronomy 24, sojourners, aliens, those who turn away, Deuteronomy 24 as well. How they worshiped bled into how they treated people in society. Remember Israel as a theocracy, there was that connection, much more that, that, that connection between religion and the actual society that the people lived in. And the overarching reason, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. McKay said, what is needed is that reverential fear of God that shows a heart submissive before him and trusting in him and his provision for all our needs. Then we can stand before him at his coming, not on the basis of our achievements, but in what is ours in Christ Jesus. They did not believe. They did not fear. They did not trust. A proper and right holy fear of God is one of faith. Believing who he is, believing his words, believing what he says, and trusting in his promises. And thankfully, his promises do find their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also in John the Baptist. You can turn with me to Matthew chapter 11. There was a charlatan named William Branham. He thought he was Malachi's Elijah uh, from Malachi chapter 4. He thought he was it. 
Elijah refers to John the Baptist, dear brethren. Malachi 4 is referring to John the Baptist. The messenger of Yahweh is referring to John the Baptist. This is one of the most crystal clear things in the Bible. Jesus expounds this in Matthew chapter 11. And John's having his struggles, brethren. John has his views of certain things. John's in prison. He's sitting there and he's like, are are you the one? I, I thought it was. I mean, he's just having his moment. And so Jesus says, go and tell, verse 4 of Matthew 11, tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So the age is dawned. The Messiah is here. Yahweh has come. And then Jesus begins to explain who John is. What did you go out to see? Into the, go into the wilderness to see a reed shaken by the wind. But what did you go to see? A man clothed in soft garments. One of my favorite lines from Pastor Butler. He translates this or paraphrases. Who'd you go to see? Some limp-wristed, effeminate preacher uh, is what he says. A man in soft garments. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in a king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet, for this is he whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. It is John the Baptist who is Malachi's messenger who has come and he is preparing the way of the Lord, which he does in Matthew chapter three. And he explains John's placement. He's doing exegesis here. He's doing biblical theology here for us. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. It's a redemptive historical reference. John is the last Old Testament prophet paving the way for the final prophet, Jesus Christ, to bring in that new covenant era. That's why he's the least. It's redemptive historical type language. And then we have some tough, tough, a tough verse there from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent try to take it by force. Then we need to add that try to take it by force. John has come. He's spoken with fire about the coming judgment and fleeing the wrath to come. And Israel's struggling with that very thing. And Pharisees want to take him out. So they try to take it by force for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah. So bringing Malachi 4 and Malachi 3 together to show forth that John the Baptist is Malachi's man. All of these, Malachi or Matthew 11, Luke 7, and Mark 1, all perhaps are an amalgamation with Malachi 3 and also uh, Exodus 23, 20, the angel of the Lord who prepares the way for the people, prepare the way for the people entering into the land. So this new exodus, this entering in, that entrance into that land will come by way of Yahweh. And even in Mark 1, I mean, when, uh, when we see the Mark starts off his gospel by way of that prophecy to highlight covenant lawsuit. It's a blessing. Here is Yahweh who has come, but as he comes, he's going to bring the day of the Lord, isn't he? Old covenant shall be no more. And the new covenant shall be forever. And even too, when Mark 1 comes in, they speak about him. And then it says, John came preaching to highlight that John is that very one. And by the way, 
I think Malachi 3, with all these passages, Matthew 11, Luke 7, and Mark 1, are great passages to show that Jesus is God, aren't they? He'll prepare the way before me. Before who? Before Yahweh. Jesus is God, and Jesus is man. And we see the fulfillment of Malachi 3 in John the Baptist, and we see the fulfillment of Malachi 3 in Jesus Christ, who, as the writer to Hebrews says, is a mediator of a better covenant. We need to be thankful that he does away with the old because the new is far greater. The new can never be broken. As Jeremiah prophesies about that new covenant, it will not be like the old, which they broke. It shall be one that lasts forever and comes in Christ. And the book of Hebrews is all about why the new is better than the old. Because the people were struggling. They struggled with the idea of faith, believing God's word. And so they wanted something they could see. Brethren, we don't see the sacrifice of Christ. We didn't see it, but we believe it. And the people at the time and the, uh, um, the audience of the writer to the Hebrews, they're wrestling with that too. Here's persecution, but I'm struggling. I can see the bulls and goats. I can smell the blood. I can see it being poured out. I can see all those types of things. And so they wanted to go back. And so Hebrews is all about don't go back because Christ is the mediator of a far better covenant. He is the one who brings justice. He is the one who brings equity. He is the one whose kingdom shall have no end. And he shall and does establish justice and equity forever. And the beautiful thing is, if you're in Christ, you are justified in his sight. And you don't need to fear that judgment day. But for those that are not in Christ, God will judge the wicked in that day. As John the Baptist says, flee the wrath to come and you shall have life everlasting with God forever and ever, world without end. Praise God for his Old Testament promises and prophecies that point to Christ to come. Well, let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we are thankful for the unfolding of your revelation in the Old and the New Testaments. Thank you that there is fulfillment in Christ Jesus, but thank you for the promises and prophecies of old. Even uh, in Malachi's day, even though there would be 400 years of silence, you promise and prophesy that there would be a messenger who would come, and that there would be a messenger of the covenant who would come as well. Thank you for the great mystery of the incarnation, that it is that second person who takes on human flesh, the one who is fully God and fully man. Thank you for the great plan of redemption as you accommodate to our language, O Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father planning, the Son accomplishing, and the Spirit applying. But we know that this is an inseparable operation of you, O triune God, to save sinners uh, in Christ Jesus. So thank you for your great plan. Thank you that it was the Son who was sent when the fullness of the time had come. And thank you after he has been has ascended into heaven, it was the Spirit of adoption who was sent. So thank you for your revelation. Thank you for what we see in your word. Thank you uh, for Christ and all that he has done. And thank you for what you reveal concerning worship and how we ought to worship. Please forgive us for being uh, growing weary in these things, growing tired in these things. We pray that we would love to gather. We pray that we would love to do what is right in your sight. We pray that any sort of distractions would be 
put to the side. We pray that we would focus in upon you. We know that you are faithful and gracious and so long-suffering with us. We know that there are those who struggle with physical ailments, but for those who are able to be here, we pray that we would be here to sing praises to your name. And thank you that our forgiveness is in Christ and his finished work. And thank you that he is the one who came to save his people from their sins. So give us the strength we need to go into the world. Thank you that you rejuvenate, that you fill up, you feed us with your word, and help us to honor and glorify you, we pray in the name of Christ.